You get a pod, I'll get a cast, matey. <laughs> you get a pod, I'll get a cast, friend. <laughs> you get a pod, I'll get a cast. We'll go casting in the pod dial cast podcast, <laughs> pal of mine. <laughs> Is this the only non-musical of the Renaissance era? Uh, I think it is. It absolutely is. Other than, no, even our bonus episode, well, our bonus episode isn't a musical, but it's more of a musical than this. It has original songs, which this does not. Nope. But it does have George C. Scott singing a couple songs to himself and also the (laughs) lizard, like, mutters waltzing matilda at one point right frank right, frank right, the lizard right with his hands over his ears mm-hmm. so really you know a bounty mm-hmm, of things mm-hmm. to choose i just wish that this had the classic crappy cover song version of we'll go swimming in the crocodile hole <laughs> you know where it's some you know variation of neville going you get a line, I'll get a pole. You get a line, I'll get a pole. Apparently, it's originally the Crawdad song. Yes, it's also one of those where the original one is like, I think it's Baby and Honey uh, yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they change it to, or it's it's Honey and Babe, and they change it to Matey and Friend. So it's it's a real Santa Buddy situation. Uh huh. Speaking of uh, crappy credit songs, I just have to say, because where else are we going to talk about this? You and I recently watched, just for funsies, Frozen 2, a movie that is in the animated canon, but that we're not going to give its own episode. One of the three crappy credit songs at the end of that movie is a Weezer cover of Lost in the Woods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's unforgivable. It's terrible. and, And I like Weezer, but... Whoever signed off on that should go to prison. Yeah, it was a terrible, terrible decision. I should say I liked Weezer. Nobody likes Weezer now, but <laughs> I liked Weezer at one point. Yeah, no, that was as bad. They should have got some 80s hairband to cover it. They, If they had gotten <laughs> Brian Adams, it would be the best credit song of all time. Right. Because that's such a Brian Adams parody. It is. Uh, Anyway, though, we're going to now talk about not Frozen 2. We're going to talk about The Rescuers 2, the first Disney sequel. See, it all connects. Yeah, yeah. It all connects. The first full length movie sequel since technically Three Caballeros is a sequel. But I don't count that one because Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros is such a different thing, you know? I agree. (laughs) Technically, people say it's the first Disney sequel, but yeah, yeah. it's more like. Saludos Amigos Part 2. Right. I also consider this to be the first sequel. (laughs) Yes. And let's talk about it. Let's start the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. Should I do this in a horrible Australian accent? (laughs) G'day, mate. We're watching every film in the Disney. An- no, that's no good. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talk about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always to throw some shrimp on the Barbie or whatever by my mother, Rue Coleman. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Isaac. How are you doing? I'm having a good day, mate. <laughs> We do, I promise we're done with that. We do want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. 
you know, uh, I don't know if anybody listening knows this, but we actually pay Brad in grade A jumbo eagle eggs. (laughs) This week on the program, we are continuing the Disney Renaissance era with a secret bronze era film (laughs) that snuck in the least Renaissance of any of the films in the Renaissance era. The bizarre outlier that nobody talks about. The Rescuers Down Under from 1990, directed by Handel Butoy. Butoy? Your guess is as good as mine. And Mike Gabriel. Mm -hmm. Mom, what does this movie mean to you? So this movie is one I also have frequently forgotten where it falls in the canon because I always remembered it in my head as it was Little Mermaid and then Beauty and the Beast and then Aladdin and then Lion King. And I always forget, oh, wait, um, Rescuers Down Under was in there, too, <laughs> because I never got to go see this one in theaters. I do remember seeing a lot of trailers for it before it came out. But we must have I can't remember if we would have like either rented it from a movie rental place or if we just had it, you know, recorded off of TV on a VHS or something. But uh, I did get to see it at some point and I liked it. It was never, you know, my favorite, but I like a good action adventure movie. And I already liked the characters. I mean, I like Bernard and Bianca and I liked the original Rescuers better when I was a kid than I do now, but <laughs> I don't know if I had a special connection to this movie. I mean, this is a little weird as our first sequel mm-hmm. and one of only two sequels we're going to cover on our show. The other one being Fantasia 2000, which also sort of doesn't count. <laughs> but so obviously on the Rescuers episode, I talked about, you know, I definitely enjoyed these movies uh, as a kid. I enjoyed them more as a kid than I do now, but this one I still like. Yep. This one I think is uh Quietly successful, and I really enjoyed revisiting it last night. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything super insightful to say about it. I will say, you know, during the later Bronze Era episodes, I was like, was I too hard on the rescuers? You know, if I watch it now, would I like it more? Possibly. But I also stand by what I said in that episode, which is this movie is the way better version of it. It's Mm -hmm. so much more successful. And I don't think it's a perfect movie, Mm -hmm. but it's so much better than the original Rescuers, in my opinion. It's so much more interesting. The original Rescuers just drags too much in certain places. Mm -hmm. Even the things that are fun about the original Rescuers, like the original Rescuers has a decent villain. Yeah. But Rescuers Down Under, I mean, McLeach is a is a wonderful is so much better as a villain. He's a great villain. Yeah. So uh, this movie is good and I'm excited to talk about it. And again, I have to say, I really enjoyed watching it last night more than I expected because I've always liked this movie. I've never like loved it or adored it. Yeah. Um, But last night was One of the rare times where we watch a movie and I like it more, maybe just because, again, when you watch it next to the original Rescuers, you're like, oh, this is the best movie ever made. (laughs) So why do you think it's a secret Bronze Era movie just because people don't remember it's part of the Renaissance? Because the Renaissance is defined by a specific formula, the Little Mermaid formula, which is. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, which is the musical You know, the Broadway inflected musical, uh, often, you know, involving magic in some way. 
based usually on a fairy tale or at least a famous story like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules and uh, Pocahontas. <laughs> that is, to me, a Renaissance era film. Every yeah. other film in this era follows that pattern. Some, you know, slightly differently, like Hercules is a pretty weird version of it, but it's still... <laughs> Very much that pattern. Rescuers Down Under isn't that. It feels mm -hmm. more like the Bronze Era style of experimentation of, you know, so what is a Disney movie? Mm -hmm. And in fact, that is more or less where our story starts. Most of the backstory here is going to come from uh, the Rescuers Down Under, the untold story of how the sequel changed Disney forever. Uh, which was published in Collider, written by Drew Taylor. Uh, it came out in 2020. It is a great article. It has a bunch of interviews with people who made the movie. Obviously, per usual, we're going to be giving a Cliff's Notes version. The most important thing about this movie, the reason this movie honestly should be more remembered, is that it was the first movie made entirely in caps. Mm -hmm. Computer Animation Production System. Thank you. Caps was developed in the mid 80s. Disney acquired it in 1985 because Roy Disney wanted it. And Peter Schneider, who was the vice president of Disney Animation, who kind of served as the buffer between, you know, the cynical evil of Eisner and Katzenberg <laughs> and the idyllic having no idea how to run a business sense of the animators and Roy Disney and was pretty much hated by everyone as a result, <laughs> as all mediators are. He and Roy uh, managed to convince Eisner and Katzenberg to spend money on the cap system, which would essentially allow these movies to be made with computers. Now, usually, as I understand, at least for this movie and the movies around this time, they were still kind of drawn cells at first, but then they were inked and painted, quote unquote, in caps. Yeah. Um, and caps could also be used to add computer generated elements. This is the first Disney movie that does not have like computer assisted animation where they traced over a computer generated model, but real deal CGI models right in the movie. Mm -hmm. And they look terrible. <laughs> they look really bad. There is also some computer assisted animation and it mostly looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. And the true blue CGI is the stuff where it's like four gray boxes. This is New York. And you're like, is it? <laughs> is it New York? <laughs> um, but Caps allowed the animators to do a lot of stuff they couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. It allowed them to mimic real camera movements. Yeah. This movie starts with a rack focus, which is, well, a fake rack focus. A real rack focus is, you know, a type of focus lens you can put on a camera that basically means, you know, in this case, you have the foreground in focus yep. and the background fuzzy and you shift it so that the background is in focus and the foreground is fuzzy. Yes. They love to do this in the Renaissance era. There's a very famous uh, quote unquote rack focus in The Lion King yep. where yep. you have the ants and I think the elephants, right? It's like the smallest and the largest, but you have ants on a branch. And this does that. And that was something that Caps made possible because, of course, in the traditional animation method, you would have to either do that with a real camera 
or you'd have to like draw blurry animation cells, which would be insane. So difficult, yes. Caps also allowed for a lot more movement because you could build computer-generated objects out of animated stuff. Most Mm -hmm. notable in this, for example, is the crazy opening sequence. This was apparently the sequence that convinced them you could make an entire movie with Caps and it would be good. Where it's going over the landscape, flowers, yeah, and up to the like big rock, rushing forward, and the music is so good right there. I love that opening shot. It looks so cool. It mm-hmm. really is. I have to say, the CGI animation, I think, era of Disney, I have a lot of problems with it, and we'll get to those. I think a lot of the cap stuff is pretty cool. Some of it, again, some of these early forays into CGI are really bad and really Mm -hmm. cringy. But sometimes they would do stuff like that that is really cool. And I like all the fake like rack focuses and fake camera movements they could do with the system. Now, I have to ask mom, I'm curious, did you watch the TV show, The Magical World of Disney. Oh, I did. I was looking at that same article and I watched the little video of the opening of The Magical World of Disney and it hit me in the deep nostalgia. (laughs) The dark nostalgia. (laughs) I was like, oh man, I remember this whole thing. But until I watched (laughs) it, I wouldn't, couldn't remember it at all. I knew we'd watch the show, but I, and it, And it was describing the opener in the article. And I was like, oh, good. Here's the link right here to watch it. And I was like, oh, man. (laughs) I know that exact feeling. Yes, the magical world of Disney intro, which is a mix of animation live action. But the animation in that was the first use of the cap system. It was a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. The other big use before this movie, of course, being... Uh, the final shot of The Little Mermaid. Yeah. Technically the second to last shot, but we we talked about that on the previous episode. Mm -hmm. But this movie, it was like, let's do an entire movie with caps. Yeah, and I think it mostly works. I think it works too. In the late 1980s, Schneider seemingly had the idea to do a sequel to Rescuers. And one of the co-directors, Mike Gabriel remembers, quote, I said to Peter Schneider, why would you do a sequel to that? And he (laughs) said, because it was the highest grossing film of the past 10 years. That's why. That's what we're going to make, whether you want to do it or not. So again, this movie really gets started in the bronze era, in the era of what is a successful Disney movie? Yeah, well, and they would have had to get it started before they knew how well Little Mermaid was received. Right. And also, if you think about it, you know, this came out the year after Little Mermaid. It took like, you know, four years to make. So working back from that, they probably started around 86, Mm -hmm. 85, 86. So which again, the idea, a big part of the idea was we can we think we can make an entire movie with the cap system. So Gabriel's initial you know, question was, why would you do a sequel to that? And the reasoning, the financial reasoning made a certain amount of sense because mm-hmm. The Rescuers, mm-hmm. as we discussed in that episode, was a big hit. But the problem was it wasn't a hit with a lot of cultural staying power. Um, it hadn't gotten a home video release yet. I don't think it had been re-released in theaters. And, you know, it came out in 77 By the time of 1990, you know, who really cares about the rescuers? I think it had been re-released in theaters at least once. It might have been, but But it it certainly was not something where people were like, 
Oh, the rescuers. <laughs> Mike Gabriel literally works there and he's at Disney and apparently was in was a fan of the movie. And he was like, we're doing a rescuers sequel. OK, <laughs> uh, Mike Gabriel, by the way, of these, uh, these were just two animators, uh, him and Butoy, who worked on uh, Oliver and Company. Butoy didn't really do anything after this. Gabriel actually had a pretty illustrious career with Disney, mostly as an animator, but he would come back to direct Pocahontas. <laughs> that was the whole idea. They were doing uh, Disney, I should say, was doing a lot of sequels at this time with their live action movies. Yeah. And so they were like, well, we'll do a sequel with one of our anime movies. And this was a big deal for a long time. This was unless you count Three Caballeros, which nobody really does, except for Internet pedants who want to be like, <laughs> well, technically, but the well actually exactly. But in in the in the real world, this was a big deal for a long time. This was the only sequel in the animated canon. I remember even when Ralph Breaks the Internet came out in 2018, you know, this was a big point of discussion. People were yeah. like, this is only the second sequel, second narrative sequel in the animated canon. Um, because, again, Fantasia 2000 is also not, you know, it's not narrative. Um, and the directors had to talk about like, oh, we really believed in this story and whatever and blah, blah, mm -hmm, blah. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we just accept like, oh, yeah, Disney's just nonstop sequels. Every Pixar movie has at least one disappointing sequel now. Or I should say a lesser sequel. Some of those Pixar sequels are all right. Yeah. At the time, this was a big deal that this was going to be the first sequel. Um, I, I have to say. Even though it seems like it was motivated by pretty cynical reasons, a Rescuers sequel makes sense. I said this in the in the Rescuers episode. You watch that movie and you're like, I'd watch some more adventures with these little mice. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish they would do more sequels or like a T. This is I would watch this Disney Plus show of every week we're rescuing a new kid, even though, of course, you know, many of the voice actors are. Uh, well, at least Gabor is 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 dead and. Yeah, I don't know. Newhart's still kicking around doing young Sheldon, so <laughs> he can't say that he's doing too much. The idea to set it in Australia was basically just because America really liked Australia in the 1980s. Crocodile Dundee had been this huge surprise smash hit. So we were making all kinds of Australian movies. So, hey, the rescuers need to go to a new location. Why not Australia? That was pretty much how that went. It's true. Making this movie was very stressful. <laughs> uh, working on the new cap system was very stressful. They didn't really have enough budget to make the movie mm -hmm. uh, because it's only after Little Mermaid that uh, Katzenberg and especially Eisner really consent to having big, big budgets for these animated films. Mm -hmm. um, so they are trying to use a brand new technology and make this, you know, good movie. But it's also uh, super limited in what they're able to do. The Gabriel talks about in this 2020 article how he had to really fight with Schneider to actually be allowed to take some of the animators down to Australia, you know, take reference photos and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. But they really tried to use the cap system to do shots that had never been in a Disney movie before, which watching them in order, you can really tell this. This movie does look and move so differently from the other movies we've seen. Yeah, it really does. And I think you can tell that the people working on it largely cared about it. I, I don't think it's like perfect, 
but uh, it's it's a little I think it's a successful little movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have anything else to say about the production. If not, let's move into the cast. Of course, we have Bob Newhart and Ava Gabor back as Bernard and Miss Bianca. We already really talked about them, so I didn't have a lot more to add. Then we have John Candy as Wilbur because Jim Jordan, who had voiced Orville, had died. So, of course, they just a couple years before the production on this movie started. So they decided rather than try to they didn't ever want to do in this movie, it seems like anybody replacing a previous character. So they weren't going to bring back someone if they couldn't use the original voice actor, which is a really interesting idea and not something Disney um, kept up with no. most of the time. So no, now they'll be like, we'll do a cartoon Carrie Fisher. It's fine. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, so obviously they named because it was Orville, they named him Wilbur, you know? Yeah. Right. Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how much in detail do you want to go about John Candy? Very big actor. I mean, as far as John Candy's career, I mean, he was a hugely successful comedian and actor. He's super funny. He's in a ton of great movies and also doing a ton of great performances in not particularly great movies. I mean, Mm -hmm. but on the good side of things, I mean, cool running space balls. Obviously, his magnum opus is Uncle Buck. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love John Candy? Monsters. Monsters all. (laughs) I think he's really good in this. And part of that is probably because so one of the screenwriters of this movie who, depending on who you talk to, is even though he's one of four credited screenwriters, is really credited with taking over this movie and becoming the story. He actually became the story supervisor. So he really kind of became in charge of it. Joe Ramft, who, of course, we talked about at great length in the Brave Little Toaster episode a great Disney and later Pixar writer. He apparently directed John Candy's recording sessions Mm -hmm. and he was making John Candy laugh and Candy would make him laugh. So they just kind of started riffing and uh, Candy ended up improvising a lot of his dialogue because of that. And apparently he and Ramft got along super well. I think Candy's just great in this. Yeah. And I think Ranf's direction probably helped him give a good performance because Candy was not really known as a voice actor. And I don't think he did a ton of voice acting either. No, I don't think he did either. So then Tristan Rogers is Jake the Kangaroo Mouse, uh, the only Australian voice actor in the movie. <laughs> uh, you can tell. <laughs> you can really, really tell. Yeah. Adam Ryan, who plays Cody, the child who is kidnapped. He is Norwegian. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) I mean, he's fine, but he's he's not extremely. He doesn't sound great as as an Australian. (laughs) He certainly doesn't sound Australian. That is another thing I, I failed to talk about. The animators really wanted to make, you know, as they're working on the story, right, they're boarding it out. They really wanted to make Cody an aboriginal child. This was especially after their trip to Australia because they hung out with some aboriginal people and they thought this was super cool. And the idea to do this is credited to different people, again, depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. But it did sound like they kind of all got behind it, those of them who had made the the research trip to Australia. Yes. Uh, Most, if not all, the animators were behind it. But they pitched this to Katzenberg. Yeah. And Katzenberg shot it down. And again, depending on who you talk to, he either shot this down with some casual racism about how it would hurt the box office 
which, by the way, has never been true, mm -hmm. or with some really aggressive racism. Certain quotes are attributed to Katzenberg. In this case, it read to me like a he said, he said, so I'm not going to say for sure. But uh, just, you know, a good reminder, Jeff Katzenberg, uh, not a great guy. So, of course, now he has to be a little blonde white boy and he can't even have an Australian accent because even that is too authentic. Yeah. Boo. Very disappointing. Boo, indeed. There were several things that, as with all these movies, Katzenberg shot down. There was, for example, going to be a dream sequence uh, that would be rendered all in cave art mm -hmm. uh, that Gabriel, especially Mike Gabriel, the co-director, was really, really interested in doing um, that Katzenberg shot down. But then Katzenberg, you know, one of his first DreamWorks movies, I think actually maybe his first DreamWorks movie is Prince of Egypt, which pretty much has that scene. <laughs> Just with the Egyptian art. Yeah, Gabriel accuses him of stealing because it sounds like even, you know, some of the things that happened in the actual scene may have been similar. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Katzenberg stole a bug's life and called it ants. So, you know, it would not. It's not unprecedented. It's not. And then there's our favorite, George C. Scott as Percival C. McLeach. I'm assuming the C is just because, you know, George C. Scott Percival C. McLeach. I don't know. He's in a ton of movies. Oh, yeah. George C. Scott. I mean, uh, a terrific actor. They apparently hired him hoping that he would bring the energy he brings in one of my absolute favorite movies. The great Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, where basically he had to be tricked into giving a good performance, um, <laughs> a good comedic performance, because he wanted to play it super seriously. Yeah. And that movie's a comedy. So quite famously, um, Kubrick said, hey, I want you to every time do a super big, super crazy take. We're going to film it, but we're not going to use it. And then the <laughs> movies made up entirely of those takes that he filmed secretly. Apparently, they kind of had to do a similar thing for this. <laughs> Uh, working with George C. Scott was apparently a nightmare. Apparently it was a lot of work to work with that guy. But they they even designed the character to look like him before he had agreed to do the voice because they really wanted him. And I'm glad they got him. I mean, his voice is just perfect for the role. That's the funny thing. Every, you know, this article has a long section talking about working with Scott and what a nightmare he was and how he hated doing it and how he was a huge crank. But he showed up to work, funnily enough, like or they got a good performance out. He was so cranky that Frank Welker actually had to come in and some of the lines are Frank Welker doing a George C. Scott impersonation because yeah. Scott refused to do multiple takes of certain things, <laughs> including him singing the creepy version of Home on the Range. Yes, that is Welker. But I never would have guessed. No, because Scott thought that that moment with singing Home on the Range was too silly. Yeah. Uh, so he was like, I'm not doing that. It's too silly for a Disney movie. <laughs> to be honest, I read these stories and I know normally, you know, we're always talking about like, oh, this was so hard to work on. And oh, you know, people should be nicer to the animators, which is broadly true. I got to be honest, George C. Scott was a famously cranky man. I read these stories. I just kind of laugh. Yeah. Just old George C. Scott smoking cigarettes and being like, you want me to be in a Disney? <laughs> It's funny, the things that I remember him the most from are actually TV movies. The My mom's absolute favorite version of A Christmas Carol, 
which is the first thing I remember knowing his name from because she always called it, you know, Christmas Carol with George C. Scott. <laughs> and then also um, there was he was in a TV movie of Jane Eyre where he plays Rochester. That's what I mostly remember him from as a child. I do have to share one story in particular, which is during the final scene where McLeach drowns in the river or as it appeared in the final scene of the movie, falls off a waterfall. But apparently it was more obvious that he drowned. So quote from uh, Mike Gabriel, Scott reads the scene and proceeds to take off his shirt. He was wearing a safari shirt and had a white undershirt underneath. He took his keys and a giant bottle of heart pills out of his pockets (laughs) and placed them on a nearby table. You got a bucket or something? Fill it with water, Scott asked. He pointed to a plastic bucket that had fruit and drinks. They dumped the ice out and filled it with water. Scott set the water-filled bucket on a stool and turned to the booth. I'm going to give you two, he said. He (laughs) dunked his head in that bucket of water. Full dunk. He keeps dunking his head. I loved him for it. He was giving some hilarious lines. He went for it 120%. So it sounds like he could still... Put in the work. <laughs> That's the funny thing. He's like, ah, oh, this is all stupid. Give me a bucket, though. <laughs> if I'm going to be drowning, I'm going to sound like I'm drowning for real. I might as well drown right for your stupid kids movie. I can't do a Scott, no, by the no, way, no, so no, I'm no, just no. doing a completely different grumpy voice, but that's fine. Yes. He's the best. I love him so much in this. Yeah. A uh, movie would be so much worse without McLeach and so much worse if anyone else played McLeach, um, except apparently maybe Frank Walker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I love Scott's performance in this, even though I'm sure he never watched the movie. <laughs> I would be shocked. Frank Welker did several roles in this. He was also uh, Joanna, the Goanna lizard, <laughs> and Marahute, the eagle, and probably assorted other animal sounds. Yeah, I think most of these little, you know, chirpings and so on you're hearing in that opening of the movie is probably Welker. Yep. Bernard Fox also returned as the chair mouse for the Rescue Aid Society, which is a very, very brief role. And I was thinking it was probably him, but I wasn't 100% when we were just watching it. But he also plays the Dr. Mouse in Australia, which is a hilarious role. I didn't realize that. That's so funny. Isn't it? (laughs) They got him back for just a brief role, but then they're like, and you can have this other role too, so you can actually (laughs) make it worth your while. And then there's Wayne Robson as Frank the Frilled Lizard. He is a prolific voice actor, but I mostly remember seeing him on the Red Green Show. We are going to hear Douglas Seal is the is Krebs. I was calling him Krebs the Cranky Koala. And he's going to be back as the Sultan in Aladdin. Oh, yeah. Which is a completely different attitude, you know? <laughs> the Sultan is hardly cranky at all. By the way, shout out to Seal for trying to do an Australian accent. He fails, but he tries. Yep. And then uh, Billy Barty actually plays the bait mouse, which is what his name is. The bait mouse, (laughs) who is, of course, you know, the high Aldwin and Willow and a bunch of other uh, roles. He's also the voice of um, Figment at Epcot, the journey through imagination. There are some other voice actors doing some very minor, minor roles. I don't know if there's anybody else you wanted to mention. No, except maybe uh, Rusi Taylor, 
who is a voice actor who did so many things. I mean, she was Huey, Dewey and Louie and Webby on DuckTales. Mm-hmm. She does a lot of voices in The Simpsons. Just I mean, she's done so many voices. She's the nurse mouse in this. She's the nurse mouse in this. And she's Disney royalty, not only for so many of the voices she's done, but also uh, because she was married to Wayne Allwine, who was during most of your lifetime and the beginning of mine, the voice of Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. And she was the voice of Minnie Mouse during that time. She stopped doing it after he died, I believe. Uh, Well, I guess uh, looking at it now, she did it for a little while after he died, but uh, has now stopped. What with dying in 2019. Yeah. But for a while, Mickey and Minnie were actually married in real life. That's interesting. I didn't even know that. It's really interesting. And this, though, she's just doing her classic squeaky voice as Nurse Mouse. Uh, And so the movie was released and it was a massive, massive failure because it turns out Gabriel was right. And nobody really cared that much about the rescuers in 1990. And they did. It also opened the exact same weekend as Home Alone, which was a huge success. I don't know if Disney didn't realize how much of a hit that was going to be. I mean, that was practically an instant classic. And so putting (laughs) rescuers down under opposite that was a bad idea. Interesting. Another interesting tie between the two of them, though. The music in Rescuers Down Under, the score is by Bruce Broughton, who was originally hired to do the soundtrack for Home Alone also. But because he'd committed to Rescuers Down Under first, he had to say no to Home Alone, which is when they went out and hired John Williams, which I think if they'd gotten anybody else to do the score for Home Alone, it would not have been the classic it is. And (laughs) I mean, I think Bruce Broughton did a great job with the Rescuers Down Under score. I think it's a good score. He backed the wrong horse for sure. (laughs) But I just thought it was so funny that they're tied together in that way also. But yeah, they should have released it, you know, a couple weeks earlier or something. Even then, I mean, there was not much buzz for this movie. People were thrilled to see. I do think definitely if it had not released the same weekend as Home Alone, it might not have done as badly as it did. Yeah, but it wasn't going to do great. And also, you know, by the time this was actually coming out, like as soon as Little Mermaid was released and it was a big hit, Everyone was excited about the next Little Mermaid. Like Eisner and Katzenberg are like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin. Like they are. That is what they are all about. So it's like, by the way, the Rescuers Down Under is finished, and they're like, "What? Shut <laughs> up! No, <laughs> we're not doing that anymore." Well, it's a whole movie. You could put it in a theater. Oh, fine, I guess. But we're not marketing it. Who cares? It's all about. We're already ramping up for Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Uh, But it was fairly well reviewed uh, at the time. I know Ebert gave it a good review, mainly because of the uh, opening flight sequence and some of the other cap sequences that looked so cool. Yep. And a lot of people really liked the stuff with Cody and the eagle, the flying scenes with that. Yeah. The the near the beginning flight sequence. Yeah. Everybody loved that scene, including definitely I was saying last night, The directors of uh, a movie I do enjoy, but How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah. Good Lord. They stole so much. It's crazy. (laughs) They're just like, nobody remembers the rescuers down under, right? And they were sort of correct. (laughs) 
Ah, well. But I like it. I think it's way better than the first Rescuers. I don't understand why most people seem to disagree with that. Uh, I think it's funny and exciting. And hey, you know what? Let's go ahead and talk about it. Yeah. So as we talked about at the beginning, it starts out at bug level (laughs) where you're seeing the what's that called? That kind of shot rack focus rack focus. Um, I tend to think of it in a different way. So I didn't know the correct term where you're seeing, you know, different bugs and zooming, you know, changing the focus to different things. And then all of a sudden it's like you take off and you're flying straight across this landscape and the huge title comes up to meet you and then falls away behind you. (laughs) It's the great score. Great fanfares type. And it's a great score at the beginning. And you're just like, Excited from the first moment. It really does work. And you zoom up to Cody's house, to his room, after the opening, few opening credits. You know, basically the credits are now like how you would expect credits to be in pretty much any movie these days, you know? Yeah, I think so. And they were inspired by a lot of live action films while making this, especially the uh, movies of David Lean. Mm -hmm. In particular, you know, he was the director of Lawrence of Arabia. But these kind of epics and some of the, you know, really cool camera movements that they have. And they do so much movement in this that I appreciate, even for something relatively tame outside of these big flashy moments. Like I noticed, you know, Cody's sleeping in a hammock and we have kind of this circular, you know, camera motion around the hammock just to show off like, look, it's a 3D hammock. Isn't it cool that we can do (laughs) that? And you're like, it is kind of cool. I've never thought about the camera movement of this movie before, but watching it after watching, you know, in order with all the other Disney movies, this is a sea change. I mean, it's it is none of the movies thus far have looked like this. It is surprisingly different. So Cody hears the sound of a didgeridoo and is waking up. Yes, he sees the bat signal. <laughs> he hears the he hears the didgeridoo signal. Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Like the rest of the podcast, Isaac and Mom just made didgeridoo <laughs> sounds at each other. This is the new Donald Duck. <laughs> We're a lot better at it, though, than Donald Duck. He's sneaking past his mom. He is. Can we get a status? Cody's mom is alive and she's cooking. <laughs> and she almost is a person. She even gets a line. She the does. Decadence. Yeah, he sneaks out the front door and she's like, Cody, what about breakfast or something? I don't remember what she says, but he's like, I got some food in my pack. (laughs) Yeah, they don't animate her talking. That, again, I think is one of those things where you see those budgetary constraints where like Little Mermaid gets to have all the side characters be fully animated. Cody's mom, you don't get to see above that, Nick. Well, there are a lot of side characters coming later, you know. Yeah, but all animals. But yeah, she you don't you definitely don't get to see her head ever. But he uh he is running off and she's like, you know, watch out, take care, whatever. Be back by dinner. And he's like, oh, mother, I have the sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> because he's Norwegian, you see. And so then Cody's running along towards the signal and he's obviously friends with all the animals and he can talk to them all because he is talking to them as he's running along and gathering up all of his animal friends. Like Penny could, I always just assume that in this universe, kids can hear animals talk. Yep. Although I thought about it this time, and I think I've thought about it before. Nothing says that McLeach can't hear the animals talk because he does talk to Frank 
And he doesn't react to Frank's response, but yeah, you know what I mean? It, it's yeah. possible. He's talking to Joanna. He talks to Frank. Yeah, but I mean, people talk to their animals. Yeah, that's the thing. It's ambiguous. But Cody definitely hears animals talk for reals. For sure. I can hear the animals. Fiddy, 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 fiddy. I am Australian. Shall we eat the Australian lutefisk? How cool would it have been if he was Aborigine? That would have been so cool. Yes, it would have been. So it's a it's a kangaroo who's summoning Cody and saying, you know, there's a great golden eagle trapped up on the cliff. Right. You have to go rescue it because Cody. Marahute, which, yes, Marahute. which is pointedly an aboriginal name. Yes. Yeah. All right. I'm done complaining about it. Cody is the rescuer of all animals. All right. Here's one problem I have with this movie. Cody is super lame. <laughs> <laughs> he sucks and I don't. I mean. Uh, I kind of had this problem with Penny. At least unlike Penny, he's not just miserable all the time. Yeah. You know, he's not just sitting by the windowsill seeing, when will God see fit to end his failed experiment, Teddy? (laughs) Penny does try to escape a lot. She does try to escape a lot. I know she's not. Cody isn't isn't as miserable, but he's just constant. He spends this whole movie going, I'm going to tell the rate. I'm sorry. I'm going to tell the Rangers about (laughs) you, McLeach. (laughs) I, I think of it more as he's uh, like he's got a lot of spirit like he's you actually know. now that you mentioned it, Penny definitely has more successful escapes than Cody, who just thinks that the Rangers will will help him out. He does try to escape, but every time he almost makes it, McLeach comes back. Oh, darn, foiled again. He's less good at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's not awful. But still, this is an eight-year-old child who climbs a mountain all on his own. <laughs> the thing about this movie is that a lot of it, as with Rescuers 1, I find a little kind of boring, kind of lame, and weirdly, like, there's some stuff where it's like, we're just not covering this? Like, it feels a little rushed because it was made on the cheap, but... The stuff that I love in it, I love so much. Mm-hmm. And it's so short that I don't have to wait between the stuff I love that it kind of carries it. I feel like it's not the most cohesive movie. It's not the best story, but I'm having fun moment to moment. And then it's over in like an hour 15 and you're like, yeah, I had a good time. Yeah. So, of course, Cody climbs up the mountain on his own. Yep. How was Marahute captured? Don't worry about it. <laughs> She's tied down by ropes. That's all you need to know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Australian (laughs) Cody. So Cody, of course, has a knife where he cuts the ropes. And just as she gets free. That's not a knife. This is a knife. She swoops her wings and knocks him completely off the cliff. But then. And he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Movie over. But no, Marahute dives down and rescues him. So then there's the very cool flying scene we were talking about. It's really cool. I mean, I don't feel like we should just sit here on the podcast and describe it, but no, it's cool. There's something just primal about. uh, I mean, so many movies do this spirited way. Again, How to Train Your Dragon pretty much lifts this. Flying is just there's something innate as human beings that you want to fly and seeing flying rendered by these great animators is cool. And there's all this stuff, you know, he's he's down in the water and up all the way in the clouds. And yep. I mean, it's it's great. And it establishes 
you know, this movie does a good job establishing a positive status quo before the bad stuff happens, as yeah. opposed to the rescuers one again, which just opens with interior. Everything sucks. Yeah. And also opens with a uh, still image, not too awesome cap sequences. Right. So uh, eventually Marahute takes Cody to her nest, which is in a cave in a cliff, basically. Which looks very cool. It's a cool setting. It does. And she shows him that she's got eggs. And Marahute does not talk. No. Which is actually something they changed. Originally, she was going to talk, but they thought it wasn't coming off right. And so they tried. I'm pretty sure Glenn Keane ended up animating a version where she didn't trying to use the Eagles actions to get the story across. And um, it works very well. Keen doesn't miss. He just doesn't. He doesn't. And I I totally agree. I think it's way better. She doesn't talk. Yeah. And this is where we find out that mom status Marahute is a mom. <laughs> mom to be. I don't know, Brad, you're going to have to put in a different sound effect or pitch shift it or something. But we got ourselves a dad status. All the dads are dead. Massive dad <laughs> casualties across the board. Total party yep. dad wipe. Cody doesn't, his dad is gone. And Marahute's mate is gone. Mm-hmm. Cody gets a feather, though, from Marahute, kind of a thank you, like, oh, you rescued me. I like you. <laughs> and then eventually she drops him off down at the. Doesn't she drop him off down on the ground or does he climb down? I forget. I think she drops him off. But at any rate, he walks past a wanted poster for McLeach. McLeach. And then that classic, you know, efficient storytelling. McLeach shows up. He falls into a trap. Yep. Because Cody is lured by bait mouse. (laughs) So basically there's a mouse tied up and he's like, oh, I'll rescue this mouse in the trap. And it's actually a trap for something bigger. Cody falls in and then you get... McLeach driving up in his bushwhacker, which is a gigantic half track vehicle, (laughs) which is definitely I believe it's computer assisted animation, not pure CGI at the very least. Yeah, but it definitely looks different. Uh, It's definitely got a little bit of Oliver and Company car syndrome, except there's so much of that stuff in this movie. It feels more cohesive. Also, it's just really cool. It's a cool design. It is. It's a hilarious vehicle. And of course, it's destroying all the trees as it drives. Yes, it like it is creating global warming like it is raising emissions one percent every foot it drives. (laughs) And I love like McLeach himself. He's a human being, but he also has like gray skin. Like He he looks monstrous. Love that stuff. (laughs) He tries to blow off the uh, the trap is like oh joanna digging holes again it's so <laughs> funny that like this trap with a high-tech monitor and everything that clearly you know was yes. dug with industrial equipment he's like oh just an old lizard hole <laughs> and cody is not buying any of it this is a poacher trap and you're a poacher yeah he's all like the, you can't do that that's a, you can't do that that's illegal what? What the Vikings think? <laughs> Wait till I tell the Rangers. <laughs> Which 
It's not what you should do, kids. You should be like, whatever you say, total lizard trap, not going to hear from me. And then you go home and snitch if you must snitch. But <laughs> I just wanted to point out that we actually see Joanna before we see McLeach, not counting the wanted poster. That's and Joanna true. is ready to eat this kid. She looks in the hole. She sees it's a kid. She's like, I'm going to eat this kid. Mm. <laughs> McLeach is like, no, you can't eat the kid. And then uh, Joanna sees that the the mouse is kind of in his backpack and tries to attack the backpack, which is when McLeach notices the feather and realizes uh, maybe Cody knows something about the giant eagles. And he fakes Cody's death. Yeah, that's where McLeach lets us know he killed the father, Eagle. And he fakes Cody's death by throwing his backpack into the river with the crocodiles We'll come back here later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the crocodile hole. Buddy pal of mine. Yes. And then he takes Cody with him. And Cody, of course, is screaming the whole time like, help. But it does no good. The bait mouse, however, escapes and goes to the local RAS telegraph office to send a message of help. And then we have the very amusing scene of the signal traveling by map. And we have several uh, locations where it stops on the way, where we can see how the mice are transferring the signal from Australia all the way to New York. I really like this sequence. It's so it's so much more fun than like every part of this, even this kind of shoe leather stuff, shoe leather being the script writing term for, you know, we have to get from one place to another, like we just have to get this done, is so much more fun in this than it is in OG Rescuers. Like, they hack into a military institution. Yeah. But, of course, yes, we get this is the first shot of CGI New York, which looks so bad. Yeah, but we don't have to see it a ton. I'm not saying it ruins the movie, but it is like, whoa, we're not ready for this yet. (laughs) You actually keep that CGI for much longer. (laughs) Yeah, so they call an emergency meeting of the RAS. And it's funny because a bunch of the delegates are coming in their pajamas (laughs) because it's the middle of the night. And Bernard and Miss Bianca are missing. Oh, no, where could they be? One small detail, as you said, the chair mouse isn't doing much in this movie. Although it is fun to just see him again and see the same design rendered, you know, with actual movement. But I like how he's, you know, in the last movie, he's like, oh, Bernard, Miss Bianca, no, a woman. But now I like that he's come around. He's like, we need our very finest agents. We're not just doing, you know, what the direct-to-video sequels do, which is the exact same story beats. Yes, For some reason, I think of this scene all the time. I wonder if I like watched this scene more as a kid or it just stuck out to me. The pea soup scene. (laughs) I don't know why you would remember that one the best. Maybe because it's vile. It's a cockroach restaurant. That's disgusting. Cockroach run restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this is why I don't really care for ratatouille, but that's a. Rat run restaurant. It's hard to get over that. But for whatever reason, roaches are grosser than rats, though. They are. But for whatever reason, I just let it go because they're they're mice (laughs) in a restaurant run by cockroaches, not people. I will say that maybe why I remember it is just, you know, pea soup. Oh, pea soup. Yes. Silly voices. And so they're at this restaurant. And speaking of things that were stolen and speaking of Frozen 2, Bernard's, you know, kind of little side plot in this movie is wanting to propose to Miss Bianca. It's true. Which is just what Kristoff is doing in Frozen 2. 
But I think it's way better here, in part because Bernard does get other things to do at all. Yeah, yeah. But I love their relationship in this. There, I said this in the first Rescuers episode, how I was like, the romance in this is kind of good, but Down Under does it better. And I think it does. They're at this nice restaurant. He's going to propose. He drops the ring. We have some fun stuff. We have a misunderstanding where Francois, the cockroach waiter. <laughs> he's, he's probably the cockroach major D. Oh, thank you. Yes, the cockroach major D. Blah! <laughs> has he, you know, has given the mission to Miss Bianca, but Bernard thinks he's somehow given her the proposal <laughs> and there's some fun misunderstanding. It's 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 all again. This is like shoe leathery stuff. We got to get them on the mission. We got to establish Bernard's proposal thing, but it's all done pretty elegantly. Maybe this is just my blind, brave little toaster fanboyism, but I feel like Joe Ramft probably, uh, you know, helped helps make this script sing. Yeah. So then, of course, they accept the mission and they head to Albatross Air because you got to fly if you're going to Australia. There's a huge snowstorm going on and they see that it's under new management and they have to go see Wilbur. So this is, of course, where we meet Wilbur, the Albatross. And he's, you know, a big fan of Miss Bianca, especially because I'm sure he heard all about them from his brother. (laughs) Yep. I was genuinely laughing out loud at John Candy's bits. And I think in the first Rescuers episode, I said that I found the original Albatross not that funny. Certainly not as funny as as I think Wilbur is. Yeah. Although there is also a line here that always makes me laugh that isn't Wilbur's which is Miss Bianca going, Bernard, this is no time to play in the snow. Yes, the way she says that is so funny. <laughs> She's like so earnest. Yep. It's I really like it. Gabor's good in this. Yeah, she is. As they're going to fly to Australia, he has to hitch a ride on a bigger bird. <laughs> they are inside a larger airplane to fly to Australia. And they're headed to Mugwump Flats. Mm-hmm. But first, we got to fly through a horrible CGI Sydney. <laughs> yeah, got to arrive at Sydney, got to fly on. And then as we're getting to Mugwump Flats, um, we meet Jake, the kangaroo mouse, who is playing checkers with a fly, who I believe has a name, but I don't think I wrote Sparky. that down. Oh, Sparky. Of course, he calls him Sparky. Who kind of feels like, hey, you guys liked Even Rude, right? Which I just <laughs> have to imagine audiences in 1990, you know, without Disney Plus, without being to actually watch these movies back to back, did not remember Even Rude, by and large. Yep. So they uh, they're they working the the tower, <laughs> the the airport, I guess for animals in Mugwump Flats. And uh, somehow uh, Wilbur's got a radio that he's using to radio into the tower. Just don't think about it. And he's got to try to land, but their runway's not big enough, which, you know, again, just land on the ground. You're a bird. (laughs) But it's very funny. It's a very funny scene. No, that's the thing. The jokes in this make me actually laugh, which not all Disney jokes do. The end effect of this very silly landing is that uh, Wilbur ends up hurting his back, throws his back out. I love all the stuff with Wilbur in the (laughs) hospital. I turned to my girlfriend who was watching this with us and I was like, "Okay, so if you don't remember this movie, this is the subplot that's straight up a horror film. It is. It's so funny. I love the scary evil doctor who here, you know, Bernard and Bianca are like, 
you know, oh, he's going to be fine, right? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they all come in. What did he say? They all come in whimpering, but they leave with a smile or something like that. <laughs> he's they the come Joker. in with a whimper, but they leave with a smile. <laughs> I think it's with a grin, but he's still the Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very creepy, but funny. This scene ends with them loading syringes of the green reanimator fluid into a double barrel shotgun <laughs> and <laughs> shooting it at Wilbur. Uh, I'm sure it's supposed to be some sort of uh, knockout juice, but it's very silly. I love the little nurse mice, you know, especially when they're on ropes, like controlling Wilbur when he's hanging and like he wiggles and they're like bobbing all around. and <laughs> Randy. Ready? This is just one of those great jokes that for me is uh, this whole sequence. It's like, how mm -hmm. did they even think of this? Who was like, OK, you know what this movie has to have? Wilbur <laughs> gets tortured like <laughs> uh, it's uh, but it's so funny. I'm so glad it's in it. Yeah. Jake, of course, is crushing on Miss Bianca and flirting with her. It's it's even worse, in my opinion, because he's specifically what happens is he says something about the two of them being married. And Miss Bianca goes, we're not married. And then he gives this look like, all right, I'm going to steal your girl then. Jake's kind of a jerk. Yeah, he is. Which I actually appreciate considering his role in the story is to be a jerk. But I don't know. I don't think he's he's kind of having some some fun at the expense of Bernard, who he clearly does not respect. Right. And um, but it gives it opens it up for some good stuff later. No, no, it's all good because that's who this character is. Right. Yeah. Jake is going to be their guide to try to find McLeach. And the Rangers are looking for Cody, but you only kind of see them in the background we do see that McLeach is, you know, threatening Cody. We do kind of skip around between a lot of uh, locations in this part of the movie. Yeah, the mouse stuff in this sequence is mostly just we keep having to do things that are basically flying and Bernard doesn't like it. Yeah, or some sort of traveling. Yeah, and Bernard doesn't like it and Jake is making it harder for him. Meanwhile, McLeach is threatening Cody. Uh, he actually yeah. throws knives at him. And Cody's in prison and he meets all the other animals and they're trying to escape. But uh, there's a very subtle joke I like here, which is that Jake becomes their guide because he's like, so are you going to take Suicide Trail or Satan's Ridge or whatever? And uh -huh, uh -huh. you think, or at least I thought, he's just making all this stuff up, especially because Bernard goes, I don't see any of that on the map. What's funny is that then in the next scene with McLeach, McLeach has a map and is asking where the eagle is and confirms that, in fact, Suicide Trail, Satan's Ridge, etc., are real places in Australia, <laughs> which is a nightmare. It's a nightmare land. Everything tries to kill you there. It's all poisonous. <laughs> so all this prison stuff, I got to say, again, the most of the Cody business I find the least enjoyable. This prison stuff uh, Frank, the very annoying, constantly talking lizard and all the other characters who, you know, don't like Frank, like the cranky koala and whatever. Uh, it, it's not the most successful stuff in this movie for me. It's it's not so horrible that I'm like, uh, stop this. But I'm just kind of like, eh, let's get back to the next good McLeach scene. 
Or, you know, the next good Wilbur in the hospital scene. Yes. Where they're going to, the doctor calls for the epidermal tissue disruptor, and it's a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) A contender for favorite scene, to be sure. And so Wilbur, of course, struggles and fights and manages to escape. And during the escape, they manage to, like, pop his back back into place. Right. So he's all better. And he flies off to try to find our heroes and help them out. I presume the reason for this whole thing with Wilbur's back is just to get the group separated. But like Orville never hangs around for the adventure with Miss Bianca and Bernard. So I, you know, never really felt like Wilbur has to. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. It is what it is. But yeah, and of course, the punchline is that while his back gets repaired, the doctor's back gets broken. Yes, because Wilbur lands on him. It's very funny. Yes, it's just a really successful little bit of business. Yep. Another bit right after this, I think, that is a contender for favorite scene is Joanna Eggs, which is McLeach. Just before that, the Rangers return Cody's bag to his mom and then she thinks he's dead. But um, that was a very brief moment. But just, you know, they did find his bag. But then I, I do think this may be it's maybe my favorite scene. It's so hard to pick one. There are several really good scenes. I agree. But I do love the scene with Joanna and the eggs. So McLeach gets out a tin, a big container of chicken eggs. He's going to cook himself some eggs because he's hungry and he can't think. He's trying to get inspired of how to get Cody to tell him where Marahute's nest is. And in a single continuous shot that just holds on him in a wide shot. Yeah. He's moving the egg carton around trying to stop Joanna from getting it. And Joanna keeps getting in and stealing an egg. It's So funny. It feels like this is the not too on the nose successor to the uh, organ scene in the first movie. It feels like they're like, we have to have another scene that, you know, has a lot of physical comedy. Yeah. Featuring something trying to eat something. I don't know. That's that's how I take it. (laughs) But my goodness, it's funny. It just gets funnier and funnier. (laughs) And he's always insulting, you know, stupid lizard and. And you're like, he's not you, you see how he's not very smart. And the lizard is outsmarting him to get at these eggs. <laughs> neither of them are smart, but neither of them are like creeper stupid in the Black Cauldron where you're like, how are you alive? Right, and why are right. you a part of this operation? They're both decently good at getting what they want. It, it's more like the Robin Hood relationship where it's like two characters who don't like each other, who are not very smart who kind of have a mutually beneficial relationship. It's even funnier, though, because one of them is a human and one of them is a barely sentient, non-talking lizard. lizard. And eventually Joanna gets all of the eggs. (laughs) And there was like dozen and a half eggs in there at the beginning. Yeah, and McLeach is so mad. He, He can be genuinely menacing, which, again, I think is like the George C. Scott... Man had an edge to him, clearly behind the scenes. He did not have to dive deep to connect to his anger. Um, But of course, he has uh, the great joke here where he says, I I believe it's this scene where he says that his mental faculties are twice what Joanna's are. Yes, he says that. (laughs) And it's like, um, that's not very much. (laughs) One times two is two. (laughs) 
But he does, from this fight with Joanna, get the idea of how he's going to trick Cody into letting him know where the nest is. So just as the Cody and Frank and all of them are making an escape, that's when McLeach comes in and stops it, basically gets everybody back locked up. Except Cody, he takes him outside his compound and says he's letting him go because somebody else shot Marahute, not that he calls her that, out of the sky. And he's like, somebody else got her. You know, what a waste. There's no point in me keeping you around anymore. And then he, you know, very slyly says, too bad about those eggs. They'll never survive without their mother. Which works on Cody because he's only eight. <laughs> I mean, it's a, up to the point where he literally says the thing about the eggs. I think he's it's a pretty good trick. He's playing it pretty cleverly. It is. It's until he goes, shame about those eggs. You think he's overplayed his hand. But fortunately, Cody is quite stupid. Yeah. I can't remember if you mentioned that the rescuers are here watching all of this. That's true. The rescuers arrive just as the gate opens and he's letting Cody go. So, of course, as Cody runs off, McLeach and Joanna follow in his gigantic half track, which, you know, I'm hoping he's following at a really big distance. Otherwise, Cody is even stupider than I thought, (laughs) because that thing is a, you know, ecological disaster. The loudest, smelliest, jankiest. Yeah, exactly. Um, We, of course, have to note one of the best lines in the movie. I assume you wrote it down. I didn't make it all the way through the third grade for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) McLeach's great line there. Uh. So, of course, the rescuers jump onto the half track to to follow along, though they, uh, you know, there's adventures of, you know, almost falling off and what what not but they do get on and again the kind of sequence that you truly couldn't do without cabs yeah i feel like at this point they're still going for the most part oliver and company noted exception <laughs> they're going you know we have this technology what can we do with it that we couldn't do before right the problem with this kind of technology is when it's used lazily like obviously the best looking cgi animated film ever is spider-verse yeah which is a movie that could only have been done in CGI. Yeah. And they really go, you know, what can we do with the medium? And the boring CGI films, like I think many of the later Disney films, are like, well, this could have been live action or it could have been 2D animation. Like, you mm-hmm. just kind of did the most literal, boring interpretation of the thing. Yeah. Uh, but this movie doesn't do that. This movie is going, you know, okay, this adventure on the tracks, there's no way we could have animated this on this budget, at least. Before, you know, it would have been a nightmare. Now we can have a little action scene on it. Yeah, yeah. And it's very good. It's good. It is good. It is a good movie. So they arrive at the cliff. Cody climbs down the cliff, going straight for the nest. And, you know, McLeach is following. I'm going straight for the nest. Me, Australian Cody. (laughs) Witness me, shiny and chrome. It's me, Australian Cody. (laughs) <laughs> so Bernard, Bianca and Jake climb down to the nest also to warn Cody that McLeach has followed him. But before they can really get the message out, Marahute is flying to her nest because, of course, she's not really dead. The whole thing was a trick. And McLeach is up on the cliff with his big uh, net gun or whatever, 
he's got it's going a on. net rocket launcher it is a rocket that explodes into a net i love it and captures marahute which of course then cody jumps onto the net to try to cut the ropes and uh jake and miss bianca grab on too to try to stick with cody but Bernard manages, can't manage to hang on and is left behind in the nest. So he gets separated from all the rest. And Cody, Jake, Miss Bianca and Marahute are all trapped in the giant cage on the big um, half track. And only Bernard is free. McLeach sends Joanna down to eat the eggs. But this is a very funny sequence, too. George C. Scott's line readings are so good. Even if Welker can imitate Scott's voice well, especially for the singing, I don't know that he would have thought to say these lines the way that Scott says them, especially the one I quoted earlier because I love it so, uh, which is the one about how he's, you know, how would Joanna like some jumbo triple A eagle eggs? Yes. So he's getting Joanna all harnessed up to send her down to the nest. And she looks over the edge and is like, uh-uh. And so he literally kicks her off the cliff. Yep. This is his pet. He kicks her off the cliff. And then she smashes all of her teeth and claws on rocks in humorous fashion. Because <laughs> Bernard done swapped out the eggs for some egg-shaped rocks. Yep. So, you know, she she throws the rocks over the cliff so that, you know, they're definitely dead quote unquote. No, not quote unquote. Those rocks are dead. Those are some dead rocks. Yeah. Bernard, then, you know, you see him patting the eggs like, ah, good. It was a trick. They're not, you know, eagle eggs aren't actually hardest rocks. (laughs) And Wilbur shows up at the nest. This is what I was saying where these characters, the villains aren't too stupid. Joanna is smart enough to come up with, I'll throw the eggs off the cliff. Right. But she is not smart enough to go, Rocks are not eggs. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's kind of right where you want a Disney villain or at least a Disney henchman to be. <laughs> but yes, uh, Bernard shows up. Bernard, absolutely the hero of this movie. Wilbur, Wilbur. Well, Bernard shows up from like hiding. But yes, Wilbur shows up. Right, 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 right. Yes, yes, yes. Bernard is the hero of this movie. Um, he tricks or not tricks, but talks Wilbur into sitting on the nest on the eggs. Also to keep funny. Them warm. It is very funny. It's a very silly scene. And then Bernard, you know, is going to chase the half track, the big vehicle. And Jake is like, I'm sorry, you know, we didn't get weren't able to save. And they're all despairing. And Miss Bianca's like, don't worry, Bernard is still out there. He'll save us. And Jake is like, good bluff for the kid there, keeping his spirits up. And she's like, I'm not bluffing. I love the line. You don't know Bernard like I do. He'll never give up. I love this moment. It is by far the most successful uh, dramatic moment in the movie for me. Yes, yes. And it's like, again, the idea of Bernard as this hero, not even despite, but because of how kind of scared he is and how he's not used to this sort of adventure is something we're playing with in Rescuers 1, but we really pay off the right way in this movie. Yeah. And it shows what is not really surprising, which is like, you know, Miss Bianca's having fun flirting with Jake, but like, come on. Jake's, you know, a a weird jerk and Bernard is the man. Bernard is definitely the man. So Bernard uh tames a a wild pig, a razorback, in the similar way to yeah, he learned from Jake earlier in the movie, would you know, stare him in the eye and let him know who's boss. Because he's like, there's no way I can catch up to that thing on my own. 
So he right he forces the the Razorback to take him the whole rest of the way, and it works. And here's where you know Bernard gets to be the hero. And I am going to pick this finale as my favorite scene. Basically, everything from the Crocodile Hole song to McLeach's demise or defeat, at least. I love the chainsaw scene. I think the egg scene is the funniest part of this movie, but this has a lot of funny stuff, a lot of the most memorable stuff. It has the Crocodile Hole song, which is always when I think of this movie. First thing I think of is McLeach singing the Crocodile Hole song. Don't ask me what about that moment is so enchanting. I think it's the fact that it's like his dumb little dance right before <laughs> that as well. Right before it, the score swells and he's, you know, giving his big like, you're going to get dead, kid. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And then he steps out of the truck, does the weirdest thing ever and then proceeds yes. about his previous business. <laughs> uh, it's it's really uh, and I love Bernard being a hero. I love the mixture of action in this and the funnier moments like, did you know there was a Razorback in my truck? Did you? There's a Razorback in my truck. (laughs) (laughs) Again, nobody but George C. Scott would read those lines that way. Nobody on earth would say those words that way. (laughs) There's a Razorback in my truck. It's one word. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> all vowels, no consonants. Yeah. Yeah. He's so he's got he's got Cody tied up on a on a rope and he's like dipping him in and out of the river where the crocodiles are so that, you know, the rangers will be able to find his body mauled by crocodiles. And Bernard steals the keys to the truck so that he doesn't have power. He can't do that to save Cody. Joanna ends up chasing Bernard. Bernard, though, manages to throw the keys up to Miss Bianca and Jake, who are able to unlock the cage that they and Marahute are still trapped in so that Marahute can then come and save Cody. But that actually takes a while. So not yet. (laughs) McLeach is then trying to shoot the rope. He's got a I, I thought it was a shotgun and then it looked like a rifle. He's got a big gun. He's got a big gun. He's going to shoot the rope. So Cody falls in the water And Bernard is like, you know, this is a crazy idea, but I'm going to do it. He gets Joanna to chase him onto McLeach. And then he pushes them. He pushes them into the ravine. He literally does, you know, give up the just enough of a push to tip him over into the Crocodile River. And then they're in the water. When push comes to shove, Bernard will kill you. (laughs) Or at least push you into the water and, you know, let the crocodiles take care of the rest. However, the crocodiles do not take care of the rest because McLeach manages to, like, smack him off with his gun and fight him away. But then he doesn't get out of the river in time and he goes over the waterfall. Sharp rocks at the bottom? Most likely. Most likely. And Cody and his rope ends up breaking, of course, and he falls in the water and Bernard jumps in after him like he's going to be able to, you know, lift a small child. <laughs> he's a mouse, but it's OK. He, you know, he's trying to save him. And Marahute, of course, rescues Cody and Bernard. So they survive and McLeach is gone, presumed dead. And finally, Bernard proposes. Yep. And of course, Miss Bianca says yes. One of my complaints about this movie, the ending is very weird and a little rushed. It's surprising to me. I had never thought about it before this time, but once I thought about it, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that the other caged animals 
are never rescued and never show up again. The koala, the kangaroo, Frank the dumb lizard. Yeah. They come to nothing. They ought to have a scene like at the end of Finding Nemo where all of the fish are <laughs> in the baggies in the, in the ocean. I like that they escape for unrelated reasons. I mean, you'd think that Cody, wildlife rescuer he is, would be like, hey, by the way, there's 20 animals McLeach has. We need to head back to McLeach's place, let them go, then you can take me home to my mother who thinks I'm dead. And not only, do- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you kind of want to see that At least I kind of want to see that reunion. I mean, I know you're just supposed to go. Or even if you see a moment where, you know, Frank has managed to pick the lock with his tail again and they're all escaping. Right. It's it's a little weird. I mean, I know that you can just say in your brain like, well, I assume they did all that stuff. Right. But it's it's quite weird to me how suddenly it ends. And that is, again, the thing about this movie, you know, you have to wonder if Katzenberg wasn't being as pushy, if they got a little more budget, mm-hmm. if Mike Gabriel was allowed to do everything he wanted, if they were allowed to write Cody the way they wanted, you know, maybe a lot of this stuff would have been a lot richer. As it is, this is a movie that's very funny, that has very cool action, and that does not have a particularly meaningful plot outside of like a couple beats that work pretty well. Even though the love triangle is just kind of like taken as read that it's resolved. Like, I don't think there's really a moment between Jake and Bernard where Jake is like, you were the hero. I was wrong. I was a real well, jerk. Well, no, he does. He doesn't have a big moment, but there is when he proposes and Bianca accepts. He's like, you know, good on you or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was more, though. And they I just wrap it up really quick. And I wish again, because of how quick it is, I guess I sort of interpreted that as like, well, she picked you, so I'll back off rather than I would prefer if he really said like, hey, I was a jerk to you. I am sorry that I was a jerk to you yeah. and that I underestimated you and you saved my life. That's all. I'm not saying this ending has to drag on for hours. I'm just saying like a few, you know, a few more. Let's get these emotional beats Let's have the teary reunion with the mom and Cody and let's have all the animals be free. You know, even this is the one area where the first rescuers does it better, even though it hilariously crams it all into one scene. It does hit everything you expect it to hit. And the other weird thing, of course, is the coda, which is a is a solid joke. But it's weird that they left Wilbur behind on the eggs and that Wilbur, not Marahute, hatches the eggs it's <laughs> yes. a really weird note to end on and then it's just like score kicks in the end of the movie dun, 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 dun. very odd very very odd in the final credits we just have you know instrumental music score from the movie it's a good score it really is yeah oh it yeah and and the the composer of it i mean you talked about lil uh bruce Broughton. He's yeah. I mean, he's won 10 Emmys. He was nominated for an Oscar. This is a real deal composer doing sure. real deal work, uh, although he also did do music for a lot of stuff that's bad. A lot of the like direct to video uh, sequel uh, Disney sequels I've seen, like he did the music for Bambi, too. I mean, yeah, does not seem like he was a guy who said no to a lot of work, <laughs> uh, but he he does a, a good job. And he does a really good job in this, which is like when I think of the music from the rescuers, I think of, well, the Rescue Aid Society song. But I also (laughs) mostly think of these themes, which are totally not in the first movie at all. 
The only musical reference is there is a very sly, tiny piece of the Rescue Aid Society song during the like when they're transmitting the message to New York. But otherwise, he wrote this completely new rescuers theme. That's the dun dun da 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 da. da. It sounds very Indiana Jonesy. It's what you want for sure. Yeah, because it's a it's an action adventure movie. Now it's time for nothing. Just kidding. There are no <laughs> sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides, or reboots uh, because this movie was very unsuccessful, and because. Even the like tangential, sweaty, these barely count type reboots we talked about in the first movie. It's true. I did have only a couple things to say in this part. So there was a third movie planned, even with as, you know, not great that this one did. But Ava Gabor died and they didn't want to change the voice actor. And, you know, you can't have Bernard and Miss Bianca without Miss Bianca. So Mm -hmm. they canceled it. It was scrapped. That never went anywhere. And... I think McLeach should be in the next villainous expansion. <laughs> I agree. We said this, I think, maybe about, I can't even remember her name. Madame Medusa. Madame Medusa, but even more for McLeach. McLeach, to me, truly is, I'm not going to say he's an all-time great Disney villain. No, you know what? I am. I'm going to say he is one of my favorite Disney villains. As in, he's like, very iconic. Probably top 10 or 15, but he is what I always want in a Disney villain. He is a cackling maniac. Yep. I think the Scott performance is great. It, it, McLeach needs to be more appreciated, even if you don't like the rest of this movie. I simply don't understand you if you don't appreciate McLeach. Yep. Uh, yeah. And I mean, we said it in the last movie. I'll say it again. And uh, heck, I said it earlier in this episode. Do some rescuers stuff. Yeah. Do a TV show. If you don't want to do Bernard and Miss Bianca, then it's whatever. It's like younger, different rescue aid society members. Bernard is their Obi-Wan Kenobi, whatever. Like you could do that. I'd watch that. Yeah, it could be totally fun. The The Rescuers is a property where I'm like, it, it just feels kind of ripe for more serialized adventures, even though, you know, normally you'd expect me to be railing against, oh, why does everything have to have a sequel? And certainly, you know, we'll get into it. But spin-off TV show. Yeah. But in this case, it's like, yeah, let's just do it. I feel like there's so much more that could be done with these characters. I wish they had made a third movie. I wish this one had been a success and we just kind of got a 70 minute rescuers movie like every I don't know, every few years or something. We just had more (laughs) funny adventures with a with a good villain. Yep. Why not? Say I. Why not? Uh, And the answer is because it made no money and because the Little Mermaid made all the money. So they're like, let's keep doing the thing that makes money. And they kept making money. It's true. Which I guess I guess that's one way you could run a for profit business. (laughs) But what about the other way you could run a for profit business, which is catering to my specific whims? Your 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 very niche taste. (laughs) Yeah. By that, I mean, brave little toaster sequels out the No. You can't always get what you want. Nope. But we can always get a rating of these movies. Well, this this didn't work. But nevertheless, it's now time to ask each other two questions. The first of which is, Mom, would you recommend this movie? And the second is, would you show it to a child? Yes, I would definitely recommend this movie. It's a lot of fun. And I would show it to a child, though I would, you know, make sure they're not going to be. There are some kind of intense, scary moments a little bit. I don't think any of them are really scary. Do you remember ever being scared of this when you were a kid? No, and I remember watching it pretty young. 
Uh, yeah. And, and not being scared. I think maybe Marahute, I actually think at the beginning is kind of the scariest thing. It's silent. It has red eyes. At first, <laughs> it looks like it might be legit killing Cody, but pretty quickly you you figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and I would don't think I was ever scared of like McLeach and Joanna. They're too silly. They are very silly. And even though they're, you know, very menacing, sometimes overall, the impression you get from them is you know, silly, you know, cackling maniac, which is right. Funny bad guy more than scary bad guy. Yeah. You know that there's no way they're going to lose to our mousy heroes. Right. You mean that they're going to beat our mousy heroes? Yes, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) And you, you would recommend it or not? I would recommend it. I, in fact, do recommend this one. Somebody's like, should I watch The Rescuers? I say down under because you could start right (laughs) in with this one. Like there's there's not really any context you're missing. And I do think that everything I like in that first movie, I like more in this one. Like the Bernard Miss Bianca relationship. I like more in this one. The funny albatross. The funny albatross in this one is funnier. Mm -hmm. The, The villain's kind of interesting. The villain in this one is great. Again, it's kind of a thin movie. Um, I I compare it to, I think, in terms of how much I liked it. Uh, I think the equivalent is about at the level of Lady and the Tramp, where it's like it's kind of boring in parts. There's not a lot of meat on them bones narratively or thematically, but you watch it and you're like, I enjoyed watching it. Yep. Yep. It's a good time. And yeah, show it to a kid. Again, I saw it as a little kid and I wasn't scared and therefore I assume no one will be scared. (laughs) So that's going to do it for the rescuers down under. I think uh, this has definitely been a much shorter episode, but I guess they can't all be the two and a half hour blocks. And I don't know, there's not the most to, to say about this short, weird. It's a weird footnote in the Renaissance era, and I appreciate it for that. Yeah, uh, I think it is probably an underseen movie, certainly on release. So if you haven't seen it in a while, maybe this episode will convince you to give it a shot. It's not going to take much of your time. Yep. Uh, but next week is a movie that mm, maybe has a slightly higher profile, maybe received <laughs> slightly more attention upon release. Uh, and that would be the little known film uh, 1991's Beauty and the Beast. Mom, what do you think of that uh, you know, super obscure movie. I've heard it's a tale as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be my favorite. <laughs> well, uh, tale as old as time sounds like it's probably pretty dusty and boring and no one should bother watching it or listening to the episode <laughs> about it. Nevertheless, we're honor bound to do it. We can't cover huge yep. blockbusters like Rescuers Down Under every week. <laughs> so next time... When we cover mom's former favorite Disney movie, I'm me. I'm mom. And it all started with the Australian mouse. (laughs) 